0: Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. <laughs> Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. And if not, welcome back. This is season 11, episode 1. And we're so excited that you could join us. Yes, Gracie
1: and I have been friends since uh, pretty much forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. today we're going to be discussing the 1981 genre bending film possession it is it is quite the genre bending film
0: (laughs) (laughs) is it a drama is it horror is it uh Lovecraftian is it all three yes (laughs) really honestly it's just a lot of yelling <laughs> just a lot of screaming yelling and nobody nobody sits still for a goddamn second <laughs>
1: no it's the kind of unhinged that you're looking for in 2023 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the film was written by frederick Tutin, i believe is how you pronounce his name i think so and all right <laughs> i gotta do good for my polish roots here yes um So it was also written by Andre Zulovsky? Uh, Yep. Okay, and directed by Zulovsky as well. It stars Isabel Adiani and Sam Neill.
0: Yes, and so uh, just so you all know, don't send us angry emails because let me tell you, I've gotten angry emails from people before saying that we spoiled the movie. But guess what? (laughs) we're a horror movie podcast we're gonna spoil the movies i know plus this
1: film has been around since 1981
0: well yes (laughs) but it has not been easily accessible until very recently
1: that is very true
0: that's true so it was sort of a lost film when it came to the stream the streaming uh wars but um we're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. It's currently on AMC Plus slash Shutter, so definitely check it out before you listen to this episode. Specific trigger warnings for this episode can also be found in the show notes, so you know keep track of your triggers. We list them to the best of our ability. Uh, so there you go. All right. Mm-hmm. Are you still here? Great. Then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary?
1: Uh, Yes, I will. I'll do
0: my best. (laughs) I will try.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's so much to this film. Oh my god. Okay, so after Mark, a spy, returns from a secret mission on the east side of the Berlin Wall, his wife Anna admits to having an affair while he was away. She attempts to leave Mark and their young son, Bob, several times, but she feels conflicted. After the couple have multiple violent arguments, Anna starts disappearing for days on end. Mark and Anna's lover, Heinrich, begin to wonder what has become of her. So Mark decides to hire a private investigator to follow her. What ensues is arguably one of the most bizarre and disturbing stories of a marriage gone sour. Possession must be witnessed to be believed.
0: That's right. No spoilers yet. You gotta watch it. This is your final warning. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Seriously. Just do it. You might regret it.
0: You actually might.
1: But it it is very good. It's an excellent film.
0: Yeah, it's really heavy. You gotta, like, make sure you have, like, a chaser. What is it called? Something afterwards.
1: Yeah, a chaser. Chaser's a chaser. Good.
0: Yeah, you got to have some sort of chaser after you watch it, whether it's Parks and Rec, The Office, something. <laughs> something yeah, make else. yourself
1: like a nice cup of cocoa and put some marshmallows in it and like bundle yourself up in a blanket and watch.
0: Maybe don't watch your favorite childhood shows because that could be a little bit triggering too. <laughs> I was telling Abby before we started recording, I wasn't sure if I actually liked this movie when I first watched it. I had to really let it sit because I was very disturbed by it when I first watched it. And I was like, do I like it? Do I hate it? And just because I like, or don't like something doesn't mean the film isn't good. Cause this film is very good. Yeah. It's very well filmed and it's very well acted. Um, yeah, arguably, um, some people might not think so, but, um, I was very much disturbed by it when I first watched it. And I had to let like, sit. I was like, do I hate this movie or do I like it? And I literally watched it three times before we recorded uh, <laughs> to know. make that decision. And I decided <laughs> that I do like it, but it's it's tough. So let's get into the production of this film. Uh, according to De Papria, I think it's how you pronounce their name, Duta quote, when Polish filmmaker Zulowski released his disruptive second feature, The Devil, in 1972, the film was promptly banned in Poland. Determined to fight against government repression, Zulowski spent the following years making his epic science fiction film on the Silver Globe, which remained unfinished due to further state intervention. Although the Polish government ordered all materials to be destroyed, they were eventually preserved, and the Film premiered at the 1988 Cannes, 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 Cannes sorry, Cannes Film Festival. Uh, after Zalowski moved to France to be able to create art more freely, he made a string of renegade art films, art house films that were deemed extreme and controversial as they challenged notions of normacy. So he has had a rough time trying to make films. <laughs> yeah. And I have not seen his other films. I've heard that they're amazing. I actually did try to find them before we recorded this episode, but they're, just like Possession was, they're a little bit hard to uh, legally Get a hold of oh wow so if anyone knows where i can legally watch these films let me know dang according to Henri de Cornith, quote in an interview from march 2012 zoloski stated that the story of possession originated in his traversing the eastern block to retrieve his family quote possession was born of a totally private experience after making That most important thing in France, I went back to Poland to get my family, which at the time was my wife and my kid, and bring them to France. I had two or three proposals to make really big European films, but when I returned to Poland, I saw exactly what the guy in possession sees when he opens the door to his flat, which is an abandoned child in an empty flat and a woman who is doing something somewhere else, unquote. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. According to Room 207, Press.com, quote, it's a matter of record that he wrote the script for possession off the back of a traumatic marriage breakup, which resulted in his gaining custody of his young son. We don't have his ex-wife, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Malgorzata Bronix. Uh, I think that's maybe how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. We don't have her version of the story, at least not in the Publicly available and not at least in publicly available detail like we do zolowski's and in many ways it's none of our business. Yeah. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, zolowski approached Danielle Thompson and asked if she would help him write the film. After receiving a script, Thompson suggested Frederic Tuten. Thus, Zulawski went to New York to meet him. They worked on the script for the film in New York and in Paris while Zulawski was in a state of deep depression. So it's interesting that he wanted a female writer to help him write this um, divorce script, basically. Yeah. Which we'll talk about in a minute, but Zulawski has been accused of misogyny, and you can kind of see it um, for sure. Yeah, But I think that it's interesting that he did want to work with a female creative to write this script.
1: It's kind of a reflection. It's reflected in the film itself that like he was really missing that part of his life. So maybe that kind of extended into his work life a little bit. and Maybe he was hoping to get some of that kind of female energy by working with another woman
0: on this film. Well, I think that this film, I mean, Mark does not look great in the film, which no. if that's <laughs> supposed to be Zulawski's insert mm-hmm. is Mark, then he really does a good job at, at making himself look like a total piece of shit, you know? So it's mm-hmm. like both of them have their extreme issues, but that's yeah. why their marriage doesn't work. Yes okay so i guess <laughs> zulaski is not a great guy though in general because he was a real dick to his actors um, oh god <laughs> yeah or at least he pushed them to to go places that felt unsafe and like as an actor who has been pushed by other actors and directors to go to places that did not feel safe for me Uh, That is like one of like the worst things another creative can do to an actor is make Mm. them do things or say things or act in a way that is not does not feel right or safe to the actor. So, yeah, uh, according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, the role was emotionally exhausting for Ajani. Uh, in one of the interviews, she stated that it took her several years to recover from the performance in that film. Whoa. Yes. And it was rumored that she uh, attempted suicide after filming completed. Uh oh. And it was actually later confirmed by Zulawski that that did actually happen. Oh, my God. Yeah. So not fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Sam Neill has also said that this film was the most intense one that he has ever worked on, and it took him a bit to kind of recover himself. And uh, and you could argue that his performance is not nearly as, what's the word? Draining. Draining, <laughs> sure. It's not as draining as hers. And it still, like, took a lot out of him as well. So, Oof. yeah, so uh, actors out there, don't let directors tell you to do something you don't want to do okay yeah. so according to chris fujiwara quote to create the monster zulaski called on carlo Rambaldi, whose impressive list of special effects credits credits went back from ridley scott's alien in 1979 to which he won an oscar by the way to Alberto Di Martino's Perseo Invincible from 1963, also known as Medusa Against the Son of Hercules. So Rimbaldi also worked on the special effects and the animatronics for Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial as well oh cool okay so isabel angiani uh, rightfully won the best actress award at the 34th Cannes film festival but possession was not rightfully banned in most countries uh especially the uk where it was considered a quote-unquote video nasty the film had a limited release in the us but i think like 40 minutes of it was cut or something nuts like that <sighs> what everyone in the u.s was like what are we watching (laughs) because they weren't getting a full film yeah so it wasn't until the film was released on blu-ray that die hard horror fans were able to easily access it however the blu-ray went out of print not long after and the film was again lost to those who didn't already own it but recently like i mentioned earlier that's changed because as of this recording possession is available to stream online through shutter or amc plus for the first time in literally years dang Yeah, so according to Roxana Hadid, other films have followed in the doppelganger mold since Possession, but all of them are operating in the shadow of the film's bleak, grim, grotesque legacy, which suggests that the fashioning of a double is an act of exploitation as destructive as a failed marriage. Many horror films have explored the trespass upon reality that the doppelganger provides, but few have done it with as much blood, sweat, and bodily fluids as the unshakably upsetting possession, unquote. (laughs) And according to Dutta, quote, the horror does not necessarily stem from the Lovecraftian monster, but the realization that the person who loves you today can choose not to do so tomorrow, unquote. All right, so let's get into our discussion. Let's start with The politics surrounding this film and separation. Mm. So according to David West, quote, Mark and Anna rarely make eye contact during their conversations. The framing of the shots in the film divides the two characters visually, even the setting with the film's consistent focus on the Berlin Wall highlights the division between these two individuals, unquote. And then Wes continues saying, quote, this split, like the splitting of an atom, causes the city, perhaps the world, to be violently destroyed, just like Mark and Anna's marriage, unquote. So Mark is a spy for, I guess, the government. Um, (laughs) and And after he returns from war, so to speak, he has changed in Anna's eyes. Uh, But Anna has also changed, according to Mark. This is very reminiscent of the film Annihilation right yes yes <laughs> whenever someone in a relationship experiences trauma their very dna changes and they are literally a different person mm-hmm. listen to our episode on alex garland's annihilation for more information <laughs> about yes, this please i truly only know that because of you abby and that episode
1: oh well i'm glad i'm glad i could bring the science Yeah. <laughs>
0: so a brief history of berlin germany split so uh quote at the end of the second world war germany was divided into four zones of occupation under the control of the united states britain france and the soviet union berlin although located within the soviet union was also split amongst the four powers the American, British, and French sectors would form West Berlin, and the Soviet sector became East Berlin." Um, This is all according to the imperialwarmuseum.org. The website also uh, continues saying, quote, By 1945, the United States and the Soviet Union had begun to emerge as ideologically opposed superpowers, each wanting to exert their influence in the post-war world. Germany became a focus of Cold War politics, and as divisions between East and West became more pronounced, so too did the division of Germany. In 1949, Germany formally split into two independent nations, the Federal Republic of Germany, FDR or West Germany, allied to Western democracies, and the German Democratic Republic, GDR or East Germany, allied to the Soviet Union, For years, the country was split, but the actual wall was not built right away. It was actually built over time, starting in 1961. So much like Anna and Mark's split, they had been disconnected and divided for quite some time. But the wall itself and their relationship was built over time to the point where they didn't connect at all anymore mm-hmm. and it's no wonder that the berlin wall is extremely present and looming in this film yeah and according to Henri de corneth quote mark's traversal of the eastern block in the film not only leads to his separation but to the emergence of his and anna's doubles unquote which leads us to our next topic the doppelgangers and the sisters. So we're going to come full circle at the end of this episode and discuss how their child Bob is affected by the doppelgangers. But we'll start here first. According to Henri D. Corneth, quote, Capgras syndrome is a disorder that was first described in a 1923 paper by French psychiatrist uh, Joseph Capgras and Jean-Rebel Lacroix, Lacroix, I think, uh, the paper describes a woman who is only known as Madame M who claimed that doubles had replaced her husband and acquaintances. This syndrome is such an interesting
1: one to me because there's a lot of literature that says that it's found in later stages of dementia and Alzheimer's. Whoa, okay. I have also read cases of those who have schizophrenia who experience really similar conditions. Mm -hmm. So there's also kind of hints of paranoia thrown in with it, too. So Mm -hmm. it makes it hard to trust yourself and the people around you. And, you know, for some who experience this, there can never be enough proof that, you know, someone is who they say they are or aren't. And it becomes this just innate feeling
0: that they can't live without. It's really, really wild. According to Roxana Hadidi, as a figure of myth and folklore, the doppelganger has been floating around our nightmares for a while, and its prevalence raises questions about ourselves. Are we really unique, singular, or autonomous if someone whom we don't know but who has our same face is alive at the same time we are? What goes into crafting another person, especially another person who is a copy of someone else. What are the spiritual and physical tolls of that? Is wanting to spend your life with a better version of someone you love, an empathetic desire, or a delirious one, unquote? Well,
1: I think this also fits in well with how we always talk about the shadow self ethos and you know that part of Jungian psychology that you know, talks about that kind of, um, it is kind of a double, you know, if you think about it. The things that we fear the most about ourselves can consume us so wholly that we kind of end up disembodied or kind of throwing those projections onto the people who are close to us. And it's really tragic and it can lead to so many problems when we don't look deeply within ourselves. And... (laughs) That's why counseling is so important before and during marriage, y'all. Follow me for more tips and tricks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Follow Abby for more relationship advice. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so let's talk about each doppelganger that's seen in the film. Uh, let's talk about Anna's doppelganger 1st Um mm-hmm so there are a lot of theories surrounding the meaning of the doppelgangers and just the various themes of this film in general um and i would argue that there is not one right answer to what any of this means and Mm -hmm. I am positive we are going to have a lot of contradictions in this episode when it comes to all of these theories, plus our own personal theories, plus your theory of you listening to this episode. Like, none of this is going to connect well or make sense. And that's why I feel like no matter what you think about this film, it's probably correct. (laughs) Right. Which is how art should be. You know, you should be able to come up with your own interpretation of it and that's what it means to you. Absolutely. Okay, so Stacy Shannon says, quote, Mark's obsession is what creates this angelic doppelganger of his wife, just as Anna's obsession later creates a doppelganger of him, unquote. So Helen might look like Anna to Mark and to the audience, but she doesn't really look like her so Mm. mark is just projecting her image onto bob's teacher so when mark says something like do you know my wife and helen says of course like of course i know her she's been the one dropping off bob while you've been away but this could also mean that she knows anna because she was once a part of anna You know, as her doppelganger. So there are two ways to look at Helen. She could just be a projection of Mark's desire or she actually is a doppelganger of Anna's (laughs) and was once like a part of her and now has disconnected from her. Hmm. So according to Roxana Hadidi, quote, the film shows us that despite the very clear similarities between the two doppelgangers, there are major differences between them as well. This brings us to what I find to be the most likely explanation for Helen's existence. She is a manifestation of what Anna calls Sister Faith, whom Anna miscarried in the subway prior to the events of the film. Helen is the humanity and compassion that has left Anna, while Anna retains the elements of Sister Chance. If this is the case, then it's no wonder Mark is so drawn to Helen, even besides her physical resemblance to Anna. She is everything that Mark misses in Anna, given flesh, unquote. Hadidi goes on to say, quote, as Anna's loss of faith and her yearning for a higher state of being drive her to commit unspeakable acts, and while creating a creature through whatever alchemical forces Anna uses is only possible via movie magic, her basic desires and disregard for human life touch on a troubling real world truth. Anna moves from an established faith to nihilism, then to the creation of her own faith, a new religion that benefits only her for which she is willing to kill, unquote. And then Hadidi uh, continues, quote, Mark's doppelganger, the ultimate immoral product of Anna's work, stands at the doorstep of sister Faith, who is compassionate and unprepared for such an encounter, unquote. Um, So this is basically what I personally think Helen is. She is the sister Faith and the doppelganger of Anna, the goodness that Anna has lost, quote unquote. Yeah. Personally, a lot of people don't agree, and that's okay. You're probably right. Uh, So, according to Stacey Shannon, why does the monster take Mark's form? Well, the most straightforward answer would be to say that it's an idealized version of Mark, one that doesn't exist or no longer exists. But, that Anna is so enamored with that she's ready to kill for it and, according to David West, quote, she goes on to acknowledge that she plays a preordained role in the social order, but she wishes wishes to reject these roles to be something greater, a third possibility that pierces reality. Anna acknowledges her need to rely on another person when she says, I can't exist by myself because I'm afraid of myself, explaining her relationships with Mark and Heinrich and her future creation of the creature, the literal making of her own evil. This feat truly pierces reality and forms a compromise between her needs for both dependence and independence by creating the creature she can rely on it, but it is entirely of her own making, mm.
1: Yeah,
0: Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Kira La Genice discusses the doppelgangers and wanting to kill them in her book, House of Psychotic Women. Quote, It is a tradition in the literature of the doppelganger, William Wilson and the student of Prague, for example, that while the doppelganger serves a distinct psychological purpose, it soon becomes a menace, a constant invasive reminder of one's own shortcomings. The protagonist is driven to kill the doppelganger as a means of survival, but as Otto Rank points out, to kill the double is essentially suicide, what he refers to as the strange paradox of the suicide who voluntarily seeks death in order to free himself of the intolerable thanatophobia, excuse me. Uh, The paradox doesn't end there though. If killing the double like killing oneself is an attempt to assert control, a misguided act of self preservation, then what about the rather significant aspect of suicide that indicates resignation? The suicidal murder of the double is also underscored by a sense of the Liebestad or love death, a marriage between the ego and its shadow self through mutual obliteration. (sighs) So, you kill your double, you kill yourself, which is kind of what Mark tries to do, but the doubles don't die.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that is... That's... Well, actually, now that I think about it, it makes sense that that happens because, you know, you push these certain feelings down for so long until finally one day they explode and they become like it takes over who you really are so instead of like striking a balance between what he wishes he could be whether that's for himself or for anna and like being satisfied with himself it just doesn't happen he never reaches that equilibrium so you know instead of killing the parts of himself that he doesn't like he just ends up killing his entirety like his
0: entire self so yeah and what's left is just what's left is anna's perfect quote-unquote perfect husband mm-hmm. but she's not even left around to and quote-unquote enjoy him which we'll talk about at the end here
1: oh yeah well something else i find really interesting about the characters in this film um namely Mark and Anna is that their personas and the gender ideals of that time swap mm. and that becomes part of the horror of mm. this film mm-hmm. like Mark kind of goes from being what we would consider a quote unquote like masculine like g- goes to work and comes home and like brings home all the money and stuff like that he becomes this like docile caretaker who stays home with bob while anna is out like fucking around as she says in the film sure (laughs) yeah and anna embodies this longing for what would have been considered masculine at the time like wanting sex and to be promiscuous with strangers and not be tied down to her child but she still kind of like wants him in her life like they're in the background Mm -hmm. and obviously i'm not saying that these ideals are correct or even realistic because really they're not and it's oppressive to all genders but this film highlights that this is this is the reality. Like, this is what could actually happen. Right. And so, in switching these personas and interchanging the sort of male and female characteristics of Anna and Mark, it kind of shows where we get relationship dynamics wrong. Right. So, we see two people who are completely opposite, but they want similar things. And the polarity and the push and pull and the toxicity, like they're all the same in a way. The doppelgangers are dangerous to them because they expose themselves to one another. And that honesty and vulnerability are terrifying ways to connect with, you know, your spouse or your family or just anyone in general, because you kind of risk being rejected. So I think that In this film we see that you know their fear really gets the best of them like their fear of connecting or not connecting or you know just wanting different things and the fear of accepting that things should be over like all of that stuff is brilliantly portrayed here because it is scary. It is... If anyone has ever gone through a really ugly breakup or, you know, ended a very serious long-term relationship,
0: I am sure that you can relate to that in some way. Right. And, you know, the fact that only the this loving woman is left, you know, Helen, I guess. Um, yeah. And then Mark's doppelganger is extremely violent and manipulative yeah. which let's listen mark is as well he's manipulative and he's also violent but yes um this this doppelganger like makes the other other girl like shoot them you know it's like he can't do it himself but he makes somebody else do it yeah and it is like i don't know it's very weird that it's like Nothing really has changed, though, <laughs> you know, with Mark's doppelganger. He's yeah. still the same. And, um, I mean, we don't know how he'll be with Bob, because you could argue that Mark is very uh, loving and caring to Bob, but um, he still has that violent um, that violent and manipulative streak in him that is yeah. shown in the doppelganger. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of like nothing... What's the, what's the difference between this doppelganger and Mark, I guess? So, yeah, I guess that Anna created it and she didn't create Mark, essentially. Right. Um, right. But that's a really great observation, Abby. And there's also a pretty amazing video essay on Possession by trans creator Style and Substance. And they talk about how Mark might actually be a closeted gay man or even trans and that's why he and anna don't connect sexually anymore and why he may seem more like feminine in uh the film Mm -hmm. um but anyway it's a really great video (laughs) it's linked in the show notes definitely check it out um it's about 30 ish minutes long um but they really uh style and substance really uses their own experience and um they like connect that to how mark acts in possession mm-hmm. so let's talk about anna's quote-unquote hysteria and object horror so Kirla janice from her memoir uh in films the book called the house of psychotic women it's great everyone um she says of possession that, quote, there was something terrible in that film, a desperation I recognized in myself, in my inability to communicate effectively, and the frustration that would lead to despair, anger, and hysteria. Unquote.
1: Uh-huh. Shared and inherited trauma
0: right and uh janice also talks about like how a lot of this (laughs) trauma comes from her mother which is interesting
1: (laughs) um so
0: many believe that zulaski's films lean heavily towards misogynistic and like Agata Pizik says quote in possession the story centers on a woman who discovers forbidden lusts and decides to go after them everywhere no matter what the consequence But we could ask, aren't these lusty, hysterical women always just a depiction of a male fantasy? Unquote.
1: This is like kind of a metaphor for the entire horror film genre as well. Sure. (laughs) Like when people hear that like I have a feminist horror podcast, they envision me ripping every single movie to shreds for like showing boobs and women being tortured by men. Yeah. And... I see how this could be a misogynistic film, sure, but it's also incredibly, I want. I think it's fair. This film works and is so scary because we see these social norms for what they are and they're incredibly monstrous and toxic. And when I say that it's, you know, realistic in how men and women are depicted, I'm not saying that, you know, that's, correct again like I just want to reiterate that but I think that it really brings attention to those disparities and the double standards and stuff like that and it's so uncomfortable to watch because we're like maybe we have been through something similar or we know someone who has been through something similar and we can really relate to it so i think films like this are important and they shouldn't just be written off as misogynistic because you know those things are highlighted and they're important to talk about so
0: well yeah and i think that a film can easily be misogynistic but i think that it's important to look at the parallels of it because you could have a film that is maybe in its intention is misogynistic but Mm -hmm. you as like the queer or uh, feminine uh person watching the film can be like okay well i'm going to turn this on its head and i'm going to reclaim it Mm -hmm. um and i think that's what uh janice did for this film and that's how i feel about this film as well it's like Mm -hmm. you could take these maybe uh intentional misogynistic views of women and you can become empowered by it and like you said like it could be like a deep fantasy of yours to just lose your ever-loving shit in a subway <laughs> because you've I've been there but truly <laughs> like i literally watched this film and i was like girl same like i get yes. it yes. sometimes you just want to scream and thrash and just kick and just destroy your groceries because you are so full of rage yes (laughs) but yep you know we live in a society where it's unacceptable to do that in public (laughs) and maybe even in private yeah Um, but you just want to just lose your shit and you can't and so maybe Zulowski's intention was to show how unstable anna is but As a a feminine person, as a female cisgendered person, like, I want to lose my shit. Like, I want to do that, you know? Yeah. So you can easily look at it this way. And, I mean, yeah, yeah, there's, like, there's no doubt that Anna's actions are incredibly relatable. And maybe, you know, like I said, like, maybe we would never actually act the way she is acting, like, in reality, but her distress is something, like, Yeah, like, I feel like we all personally feel deep within our core and Anna's life as a wife and mother could be part of the cause. And Emily Gett says, quote, Anna thrashes, Anna trashes her home, pulling food out of every cupboard onto the floor, leaving her young son to fend for himself, breaking every convention of the perfect housewife. Anna rebels against the domesticity that suffocates her, unquote. And there's even a point where she takes the electric meat knife to her neck (laughs) and the second most iconic scene with an electric knife the first one is probably from the rocky horror picture show
1: (laughs) yeah yep evil dead remake coming in hot at number three right exactly
0: (laughs) So like Anna is just in that scene. She is just so sick of Mark's nagging and questions and judgment. And she just wants to slice her head off with the very thing that she is using to prepare their dinner. (laughs) And, you know, as someone who has had dark thoughts about using kitchen utensils on themselves, this hits really close to home for me. Not that I've been in the exact same situation as Anna. I have not, thank God. But, you know, when you are <laughs> depressed and anxious and angry and, you know, have OCD, like I do apparently now. I was diagnosed with it recently. Yeah. um, You just have these really dark thoughts that are really hard to control. And I get it. <laughs> like, I mm-hmm. really get it. Um, as Kirla Jenice explains in House of Psychotic Women, quote, I can relate intensely to Anna's disturbing fits, the shaking, tingly feeling that precipitates disassociation, the wringing of hands, the stomping from one room to another, up and down stairs, threatening and daring oneself to act on the threat. When Anna holds the knife to her neck, she is daring to act on the threat of violence. In my house growing up, it was my voice that was a problem, I was told not to talk as anna struggles to talk her whispers become growls screams and hyperventilating there is a freedom in this kind of self-obliteration the collapse of propriety we all need that place that window of time to go crazy unquote just
1: as an aside real quick too about kind of feeling triggered because i feel like this fits in really well here <laughs> yeah Um, during my first viewing of this film, like, I am not a child of divorce, nor did I grow up in a house that experienced domestic abuse, thank, thank the Lord. Um, my parents did a normal amount of arguing, I would say, for a married couple. Like, really, I didn't experience ugly marriages (laughs) until I reached adulthood, and... Not with yourself. But with other people that
0: you know, yeah.
1: But let me tell you, this film is wildly accurate while maintaining a lot of fantasy. The things that are said between Mark and Anna are things that, like, I have actually heard between two people firsthand. Wow. And it's so, like, raw and realistic in the way that like you almost become animalistic when Mm. you're so emotionally charged and the we'll talk later about the title of this film and what it means but it is truly like you are possessed by a different being because you invest so much of your life in another person and you know you. You are fighting for, you know, keeping all of the good memories, but at the same time, you're like, I can't stand this person. It's so wild. And yes, like, you can look back on it and be like, if you've ever been in that situation or you know someone or love someone who has been in that situation, you can look back on it and be like, that was so childish.
0: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) my God. Yes.
1: The things I said were so Cringe, uh, like <laughs> off the wall. Yes. Yeah, cringe exactly. And you're like, oh, 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 God. Oh. But it's true. Like, it's so. Oh, oh, oh. I mean,
0: even I've never had the the fights or the arguments that uh, Anna and Mark have had, but I've definitely said some really cringy shit to like other to people when i've argued with them or fought with them and stuff and it's just like even in those minor arguments you say things that are really silly and i mean people have said like i laugh when i watch possession because it's so ridiculous but yeah you do say really ridiculous things when you're in a, a state of absolute anger and rage and yeah i mean zulaski it's funny that you say that you've heard those things firsthand because he said that a lot of the dialogue might seem really silly and childish and unrealistic but the majority of the dialogue uh were things that he and his ex-wife actually said to each other Ooh, so, ouch yeah before y'all call possession unbelievable check yourself <laughs> and be thankful that it feels unbelievable that means you're in a very healthy and stable relationship probably that is true that is true so let's talk about abjection um according to julia kristeva in their essay powers of horror and essay on abjection quote there looms within abjection one of those violent dark revolts of being directed against a threat that seems to emanate from an exorbitant outside or inside ejected beyond the scope of the possible the tolerable the thinkable it lies there quite close but it cannot be assimilated unquote so with that said what is abjection Mm -hmm. well according to wikipedia uh (laughs) abjection is a concept in critical theory referring to becoming cast off and separated from norms and rules especially on the scale of society and morality the term has been explored in post-structuralism as that which inherently disturbs conventional identity and cultural concepts so it is what is shown outwardly but should quote unquote be kept inwardly. And mm. that could be intense feelings, like mentioned earlier, or mm-hmm. actual bodily fluids, both of which Anna presents <laughs> to the audience in this film. Oh, yes. Oh yes. According to Rachel Francis Sharp and Sophie Sexton, in their artistic essay Mother's Milk and Menstrual Blood in Puncture, the Monstrous Feminine in Contemporary Horror Films and Late Medieval Imagery, quote, the female body has a cultural and critical history of being conceived of as monstrous, owning to, owing to certain maternal associations in critical and theoretical discourses. The conceptual notion of the female body as that which is monstrous is conceived via its fluid outpourings. The appearance of milk and blood remind us of the figure of the mother and her role in relation to us as distinct subjects. As Julia Kristeva has argued, the maternal female body threatens social order and somatic cleanliness in that it produces fluids which transgress the bodily boundaries of the flesh. The symbolic associations of mother's milk and menstrual blood induce a reaction of horror from the observing subject. Who associates these fluids with a monstrous form of maternity? The female body collapses the boundaries between self and other via reproduction. The reproductive capacity produces substances that bring the internal to the external birthing, bleeding, and breastfeeding. In sociocultural terms, these traits cast the mother figure as an abject monster, that which dissolves the borders between the flesh and the world, By the way, that is uh, an amazing essay, and everyone should read it. It's linked in the show notes. Um, I'll talk about it more in a minute. But how does the abjection of bodily fluids work with Anna as the abject figure? Well, her miscarriage in the subway scene, where she oozes green slime, white pus, or possibly milk, and red blood. Ooh, there's something I
1: definitely want to point out in regards to this, but it works better for the next topic, so
0: I will wait, I guess. Well, (laughs) you won't have to wait long, because it starts right now. Oh! (laughs) Oh my god. <laughs> Do you know that video I just referenced? What? <laughs> yes, it starts right now. The guy who has the like water jetpack on. And... Oh my god. <laughs> RIP Vine. <laughs> <laughs> and it starts right now. Splash. Anyway. <laughs> the Nature of God in Possession. So all of the main characters in this film have some idea of what their version of God is. According to Andy Thomas, quote, Heinrich's mannerisms are suggestive of his belief that God can be found through hedonistic pleasure. Early on, Mark finds a postcard from Heinrich inside a book of Tantra postmarked from the taj mahal heinrich tells anna i've seen half of god's face here the other half is you his expressions both physical and verbal all center around a tangible interaction unquote so of Barf. course yeah heinrich oh poor heinrich he's <laughs> he's pretty cringe too um Of course, we all know why the Taj Mahal was built, but in case you don't, the Taj Mahal is an Islamic mausoleum in Agra, India, built for Mumtaz Mahal, the Empress Consort to the Mughal Mughal Empire, by her husband Shah Jahan. According to Muhammad Abdullah Chaktai, quote, the imperial court documenting Shah Jahan's grief after the death of Mumtaz Mahal illustrates the love story held as the inspiration for the Taj Mahal, unquote.
1: Um, apparently I'm an uncultured swine because I did not know this.
0: Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, okay. I'm glad I could be here to give y'all a little history lesson on on <laughs> lost love.
1: <laughs> oh, no.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the Taj Mahal is not just a tomb, but it's an expression of deep, undying and unconditional love for a human. It's a a, a building that was built on really like deep grief you know from this man yeah. <laughs> he missed his yeah. wife so goddamn much um <laughs> and you know we build large glorious churches for this the cosmic version of god but very rarely are buildings like the taj mahal built for a human lover heinrich's mm-hmm. love for anna or anna i keep saying both it doesn't whatever anna anna <laughs> tomato tomato um <laughs> heinrich's love for her is primal and earthly and honestly it's really selfish he sees her as his god or at least half of god heinrich's love seems to be all for show and there's no real depth to it much like how most affairs go or to compare it to god someone who uses god as a way to justify their actions and beliefs yeah yep heinrich is a self-proclaimed guru He is someone who claims is close to God, who understands God. According to Thomas, quote, Heinrich's feigned enlightenment torments Mark throughout the film, but when his ideology is put to the test for the first time, he crumbles, revealing himself to be completely ill-equipped to deal with the dangers he's found himself in, unquote. La Janisse also mentions how Heinrich is not at all prepared to face actual divinity. Now, Heinrich's mother, who doesn't nearly get talked enough about when we discuss this film, she is in a similar boat as her son. Only she doesn't see Anna as God or half God, nor does she see her past lovers as God. She instead worships her own son. And when she finds out that her son is dead, that her god is dead she no longer wants to live in a world without her god and after a brief but heartfelt interaction with mark she dies by suicide and one of my favorite lines from that scene is when she says i have to be on my son's side and it's so sad and beautiful because her son is a huge ass jerk and she knows (laughs) it especially since heinrich (laughs) left his wife and child for anna yeah but through all of that she has her son's back and listen heinrich and his mother are very complicated humans they are not good people but they aren't bad people either i mean anna mentions that at the beginning of this film she says something like people aren't all bad or good but right i digress we'll talk more about that later um mark's feelings toward god are arguably more bleak and maybe not if you're an atheist, but I'd argue that even if you are an atheist and you agree with Mark's feelings towards God, it's still pretty bleak. Yeah, According to Thomas, yeah. quote, in conversation with Heinrich, Mark isn't being flippant when he says that God is a disease. Several times throughout the narrative, Mark describes a memory of his dog crawling under the porch to die. And in a resigned exchange with Anna, he tells her that God is still under the porch with that dog. And even later reveals that he followed the dog so that he could see what it was, what it was that made him crawl under there. Even as a boy, Mark sought God in death. And just as he now yearns for understanding from Anna, he seeks answers to the unanswerable, unquote. So if Anna is God and Mark sees God as a disease, it's yeah. easy to see why he wants to understand Anna and be near her, but how he also despises her his emotions towards God and his wife are pretty similar, and they're complicated, and they're toxic, and they're really depressing. Yeah. Now, for Anna, as mentioned earlier, Anna is at war with herself more than anyone else in the film. And she sees herself made up of two sisters, Faith and Chance, to which Faith was miscarried and possibly turned into Helen. That's my theory, anyway. According to Thomas, quote, as Anna's struggle with faith and chance comes to a head, she recounts an episode where she stands before a crucifix at a church. She whimpers and moans at the foot of Christ, apparently a last-ditch effort at communicating with God. As even these pleas go unanswered, Anna leaves the church unfulfilled, leading her to the most recognizable scene in the film, unquote. And as David West puts it, quote, Anna has rejected God as a source of meaning, and she turns to other methods. Her new lack of faith apparently allowing her the moral freedom to carry out her gruesome work, unquote.
1: So this was my earlier thought when we were talking about, like, the bodily fluids. When you take communion, there's a line that the priest says, and it's supposed to be, like, I don't know. It's supposed to be a Jesus quote from the Last Supper or something, and it says something like, "Drink of my blood and eat of my flesh," and it basically represents, like, my body or something gruesome like that. <laughs>
0: sure. Who knows? If you've ever seen um, Midnight Mass on Netflix, everyone needs mm. to everyone needs to watch that. Just watch it. It's great. It's the best thing done. <laughs> that Netflix has ever made. Just, I'm not even kidding. If you don't have a Netflix account, get one just to watch it and then cancel. Because it's great. Yeah. Anyway, that kind of has, yeah, some kind of cannibalistic, uh, vampire-ish kind of tones to it. But anyway. Yeah, it's it's like weird and gross, right? Sure. But,
1: <laughs> I mean, that is motherhood, though. Ah, uh, it
0: is. It is. <laughs>
1: yeah it is the amniotic fluid the placenta the breast milk and the blood like that's also the reality of womanhood for a lot of people who identify as women like we break off little pieces of ourselves emotionally to fill others up and i mean that could be our children our partner like spouses family members whatever if you follow catholicism and that kind of thing, like Jesus pays the ultimate sacrifice by giving his body and taking the lashings for the sins of humanity. And, you know, in the film, Anna kind of does this when she's beaten by Mark. And Mark does this when he learns that Anna is having an affair. So it's like this whole cycle of, you know, feeling like you have to sacrifice yourself and almost like, you have to be a savior in some way. Like you got to fix people or, you know, you have to sacrifice parts of your body and people literally take so much out of you, whether you are a mother or a partner.
0: Yeah. Or a seahorse dad, you know, it's just like, <laughs> you know, like if you have ever given birth, uh, you are, have done what Jesus has done. Jesus is kind of the ultimate mother. You would think uh, Mary would be, but Jesus kind of is, which listen, I love what you said there, Abby, because you're gonna love what's coming next. And it starts right now. <laughs> ah yes that has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about next uh so anna to me could easily represent a kind of virgin mary not only is she always wearing blue a color that's heavily associated with mary but she also says to mark do you believe in god it is inside of me And this would make sense as to why Heinrich would worship her. And while Mark is seemingly confused and disturbed by her, it Mm. also makes sense as to why Anna says that Heinrich isn't special. He's just a man, an insect, you know, is what she says while she's like kind of pricking him with the scissors. So, (sighs) yeah, so Anna possibly believes herself to be the mother of God capable of a virgin birth and we see her miscarry sister Faith in the subway, but what about the creature, Mark's doppelganger? There's a theory that at the same time she miscarried, she gave birth to the creature in that scene too. And according to Kira Janice from House of Psychotic Women, What makes the scene impossible, as it were, is that in this oozing mess Anna has created in the subway, she appears to be pushing something out of herself, something rather slimy and large. This thing is later discovered to be the tentacled monster that she nurtures like both a child and a lover. She is presented as having an insatiable sexual drive, one that even the sleazy Heinrich can't fulfill, and having incestuous sex with her slippery offspring is the closest thing that connects her to any sense of herself thus her repetition repetition of almost almost unquote yeah yes gross <laughs> Stop it. Yeah, so (laughs) she created it, gave birth to it, so to speak, but she also has sex with it. And there's a very creepy incest aspect of it, obviously. And listen, I don't want to ruin this for y'all Christians, but Jesus is the son of God, but is worshipped similarly to God and usually put in the same category as God. They are one in the same. And Mary was made to have jesus through god so is this like a weird like incestuous thing between god mary and jesus <laughs> like yeah so much wrong
1: there's so much wrong yeah with it. And it, uh,
0: yes so like again the term mother of god is used for mary so yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> well another really weird thing too
1: is that like she sometimes looks like she's dressed like a nun in the movie sure like especially when she like tries to slice her neck open and she's got like the white collar on and like she wears that like long black dress or whatever and it's it's kind of like along those same lines like how nuns are supposed to be celibate but like what happens if you know, you you uh you have sex with your own offspring. Is uh, that uh, is that is that still bad? Yeah. Because technically, you know, it, it came from you and. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah uh,
0: <laughs> it's yeah. You, know, you can't think about it too hard, or else you just start feeling queasy. So. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Welcome to uh, welcome to Catholicism. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to like add on to this creature being like more like of like a divine you know like uh whenever the um private detectives see the monster they say mingot you know my god you know like when they see it and so there is um yeah there's they call on god when they see this monster and even heinrich at one point uh is like talk is like thrashing and like like losing his brain while he's talking to Mark in that bathroom and Mark's yeah. like well maybe you actually did see god and that's why you're freaking out because your brain is too <laughs> is too underdeveloped <laughs> to understand it to comprehend it you know so uh there's definitely Uh, a lot of hints that this monster is divine in some way so well hey the angels in the bible are very monstrous so yes uh, there's been a lot of uh tiktoks i guess about what and instagram reels uh, showing what these yes the The eyeball eyeball with the wings yes (laughs) what these angels have been described to look like and yeah they are not these uh like Fabios and uh, angels, you know, <laughs> they're scary looking. They're not
1: Harlequin models, okay?
0: No. <laughs> now, with all that said, remember how we very briefly discussed Anna as an abject figure?
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
0: it works really well with her associating with the Virgin Mary as well. So, according to Sharp and Saxon, quote, Christ's body assimilates femininity by manner of its bleeding, which you mentioned earlier, Abby which mm-hmm. mimics both lactation and menstruation, re- ah! constructing Christ as an icon simultaneously capable of being a mother and a lover, unquote. So this theory of Christ as mother lover works with Anna being mother of God or half of God as well. It's pretty fucking weird and and Saxon say, quote, her character struggles between the polar extremes of being the Virgin Mary and the monstrous female. The mixture of red, white, and blue perfectly expresses the contradictions in this Marian representation. If Anna is a mother and a virgin and a lover, the fluids her body produces are at odds. She must menstruate and produce milk while still maintaining virginity and purity against this fluid disorder, unquote. And and- fluid disorder? Yes. <laughs> and Sharp and Saxon continue saying, Abject fluids feature often in the symbolism of theological imagery as Christ's blood is shed, flowing like mother's milk to cleanse all sins. The abject plays a role in medieval Christian imagery and narratives as much as it does in contemporary horror movies where the bleeding lactating body is both a reminder of our maternal origins and a depiction of a body that is imbued with eroticism by means of pushing a boundary limits between the internal and external unquote
1: yeah okay so yay i'm glad we're all on the same page (laughs) (laughs) really though god is a woman yes (laughs) also if we're gonna talk about eroticism why why did they make jesus so sexy <laughs> <laughs> like why it's so it is it's erotic he's got his little like loincloth yeah. draped across and he's like oh, this-
0: yeah I, I mean it could easily be looked at that way for sure why it- are all crucifixes so <laughs> saucy <laughs> <laughs> it is of it is very strange that listen, I'm not Catholic, so I'm sorry if I'm offending anybody, but I do feel like it is a little strange that um, the crucifixes uh, really highlight Jesus's suffering <laughs> instead of yeah. all of the goodness that Jesus uh, has has been known to preach and all this stuff, whether you believe in it or not, what Jesus did say was actually like kind of great and kind of sweet and kind and gentle. And mm-hmm. instead, uh, we focus on his suffering, and it's like uh...
1: because they need to make you feel guilty. Yeah, you that's can't what it is. enjoy things <laughs> if you know that Jesus is up there dying on the cross, and you're looking at him all the time, and you're like, "Oh shit."
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's really too bad. It's really too bad. Uh, it really is. In my Poor opinion. Jesus. Poor Jesus. Poor guy. <laughs> Poor people who feel like they have to focus on that aspect of it instead of the actual, like, real teachings of Jesus. But anyway, this is Jesus not. Jesus a- wants
1: you to live deliciously. <laughs> all right. That's it. That's that's where
0: <laughs> we can move on now. All right. All right. Um. Yeah. So. I, I just want to add something here. Um, when you do breastfeed, um, your period stops. Your period, uh, does not come back until usually when your breast milk starts to reduce or like when you stop breastfeeding. Like after I had my son, my period did not come back for, I want to say about a year and a half. So God, there was a solid two and a half years where I did not have a period and it was glorious and I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting that she uh, produces milk and blood because it's it does happen, but it's very rare that you mm-hmm. um, produce milk and menstruate at the same time. Right. So, yeah, it is very contradictory. Much like Anna, she is uh, at war with herself So let's move on and talk about infantilizing our partners, ourselves, and we'll also talk about Bob's role in Possession.
1: Can we just take a second to talk about how weird it is that the child is named Bob? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Thank you for mentioning that. Like,
1: what the fuck? (laughs) Obviously, I know that, like, all Roberts
0: have to be babies at one time, but it's so weird. But his name isn't Bobby, which seems more like uh, like a child's name, Bobby. Yeah,
1: Bob is, like, an adult man (coughs) who uses the same travel mug to go to work every day (laughs) on his morning commute. (laughs) And he, like, wears tweed suits and smells like...
0: Altoids. Well, that's what it's so funny. It's like Bob is something that your coworkers call you. Bobby yeah. is something your parents call you. And Robert is something you put on uh, official documents. <laughs> so, yes. like none of his parents calling him Bob makes no sense to me personally. I know. <laughs> Was he born a Bob? I know
1: oh my god oh
0: dear who knows but thank you for mentioning that because when i first saw this and they were talking about how bob missed you and and before he's even introduced i'm like who the hell is bob i was like oh it's a kid
1: (laughs) (laughs) do they have an adult son (laughs) (laughs) seriously if they had a daughter they'd probably name her like barbara or something (laughs) barb barb missed you
0: (laughs) barb and bob (laughs)
1: Where's Barb? Oh, she ran to the corner store to grab a pack of Lucky's and some <laughs> scratch-offs. Like, what?
0: <laughs> so weird. Oh, so weird. I know. Uh, so the, anyway, there's a scene in the film that creeps me the fuck out. And that's when I watch every time I watch it. And it's when Mark undresses Bob and observes his Ugh. body. I hate it. Yeah. So, like, when I first saw the scene i thought oh my god he sees bruises on his son which yeah. might be hinting at that like anna was physically abusing bob while he was gone um right but it turns out that's not the case um he promptly tucks bob into bed after that scene uh anna returns to the apartment and they talk or fight i can't remember and <laughs> it all blurs together and then yeah. um anna is undressed by mark And the scene he had with Bob is mirrored here with Anna. He undresses Mm. her, like touches her ribs like he does Bob and then like holds her. And then he tucks her naked body into bed and he cares for her like he did Bob in the previous scene. And according to Vincent Beck, quote, the infantilization of an adult dismisses an adult's ability to live independently, care for themselves, and make well-informed decisions. Mark sees himself as Anna's caregiver, her, her her superior in both strength and rationality, unquote. Beck continues, throughout Possession, there is a tension created by the two opposing worlds of the main characters, Mark's drama and Anna's horror we can see the characters coexisting in scenes while acting as if they are in completely separate films in one scene as mark and anna finish fighting on the road outside their home anna's bloodied face suddenly holds an eerily transfixed expression as she walks down the road leaving mark to kick a soccer ball to some school children unquote. yeah this is fine yeah this is like what yeah <laughs> so So not only does Mark feel like he has to care for Anna because he because he feels like she has no idea what she's doing and is a teeny weeny baby, but he also infantilizes himself and wants Anna to care for him like she would their own child. So, like, much Ugh. like how a child is learning empathy and unclear of their own actions, with Anna's bloodied face caused by Mark's abuse, she walks away like a mom who has just been smacked in the head by their toddler, and the toddler, with no clear understanding of what they've just done, moves on. It's like a super yeah. normal occurrence with a mother and child, but not at all one with an adult couple. Oh, no. Aunt. He and a Helen, Mark and Helen get naked and giggle in bed together. And it is like the it's also a scene that is like so bizarre to me and so teenish and childish. Like she says to Mark, "You don't have to make love to me if you don't want to." And he says something like, "I wasn't trying to." And then they giggle and laugh like they're school children. And I'm like, "Are these even adults? What oh God, am was- I watching?" <laughs> it's very cringy it is i was like what is happening oh oh and mark asks bob at one point who do you think is prettier helen or our mommy Ugh. and i am not i'm like first of all you man child why would you ask that <laughs> and third like second she's not your mommy <laughs> uh, like he is so he so badly wants to be her caretaker but he also wants her to take care of him it is bonkers to me yeah it's it's like pretty gross yeah it's pretty gross yes and that's why I feel like if this if Mark is Zulovsky's insert he's doing himself no favors which I respect in that regard
1: (laughs) no yeah but I will say When, it's kind of like what we talked about earlier, when you're in this position, you do some wild ass shit. Yeah. Like, (laughs) you really do. You have, it's, it's like you just lose control and you have no rhyme or reason to the things that you do. Right. It's just fucking nuts. (laughs) Anyway, so. (laughs) Okay, so. Let's also talk about how Bob is always in the fucking tub. <laughs> I know. Like, like, honestly, this it reminds me of in my time. T- like, is he just rolling around in the mud literally all the time? <laughs> when the movie first starts, he's having a bath and Mark says to Anna, come and admire him. And I think this is maybe a nod to the one good thing that came from this relationship and how a lot of parents will use kids to kind of, like, save the marriage when things aren't working out. But, well, and, like, the thing is, too, after he says that, Anna walks in and she starts, like, smiling and laughing like
0: nothing is wrong. Yeah, it's like they're like, it's so weird because, yeah, that scene, the this is at the beginning of the film because the start of the film is them being, like, hey we haven't seen you in like a year uh nothing is the same and i don't really like you goodbye and he's like wait what (laughs) and then then the next scene is them having a good time in their apartment it is such a whiplash of like emotion you're like wait are you guys fighting or are you what's happening here and then all of a sudden they're not and it's like huh Yeah.
1: (sighs) I swear to God, it's because of the added element of a child. Yes. Like, and I'm not saying that, like, if you're in a toxic relationship, stuff like this doesn't happen, like, if you don't have a child. But uh, it is so common to Mm. see this kind of behavior in couples who have a child in hopes of, like, trying to salvage the marriage or what have you it's it is unfortunately
0: a very common thing so but well and they don't fight in front of bob right he never sees i'm sure he hears it because he's in the apartment when it happens sometimes or he's like pretending to sleep but he never is there when it happens which i find interesting i guess is what i should say
1: yes i mean i think even though the fights don't happen in front of bob necessarily he still sees it and he senses it because kids kids are smart and they're perceptive and they pick up on that stuff so sure you know.
0: yeah and it, we'll talk a little bit about bob in the tub again in a second because um uh there's this the the ending so bob and this ending <laughs> so uh according to jamaman from in Their Own quote in possession the end shot is bob drowning in the bathtub submerging himself in an attempt to hide this can be read as to how it is the children who end up being the most effective affected by these dysfunctional households the true mm-hmm. horror isn't from strange tentacle monsters but how self-destructive people can be towards each other and it is the innocent who ultimately suffer from the fallout so bob starts in the tub and ends in the tub and he's in yep. the tub in between too he's in the tub a lot <laughs> yeah she's but he Christ. does start um, and end in it
1: yeah yeah which is so funny because It's like, um, well, I'll talk about this in a second, but how his father is very um, childish. Bob wants to stay in the tub because it's like a womb and it's where he feels safe. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to say, like, Bob in the film is always seen without clothes. Like for a majority of the film I feel like. Yeah. And the the one time he's supposed to be naked really is in the bathtub. So this ending of him jumping in the bathtub with his clothes on is kind of a way of basically saying like everything is fucked. Everything is backwards. Mm. And we start out with the film like seeing this kid playing in the tub innocently. And then by the end of the film he's drowned himself with his clothes on because maybe that's what feels safest to him. Like he's not being peered at by his parents and he can find some peace there in that moment. And it is, it's like a return to the womb. Mm -hmm. Like the noise of um, the sirens and everything going on, it's muffled and it's dark. And that's all he knows about his parents, really Uh, his mother protecting him. And, he clearly knows the difference between the doppelganger and his mother, and he knows that she can't protect him because she's not really real. She's not his real mom. Right. So, also, Bob shouldn't be aware, really, of the threat outside of their home at the end of the film. Like, kids aren't supposed to fear their parents, but Bob is clearly frightened of this figure outside of the door. And there's a very pervasive and obvious loss of innocence that we see with bob and if we look at like what his character goes through throughout the film he's this like adorable loving little boy he loves both of his parents and like he's just trying to do the best he can absolutely yeah but it's like by the end he's just so fucking tired (laughs) he's
0: like oh my god yeah and that was definitely my interpretation of him uh jumping into the tub, and uh, into the tub at the end of the film it was like a return to the womb he's like starting over like he's like i need to get reborn here and like mm-hmm. to different parents because this sucks and i think you're right like helen i don't think helen could have protected him but i disagree that she's not his mom because this is the part that i feel like is just part of my theory again there's no wrong answer here but um i still think that she is the goodness that his mother had like she's the mother teacher faith that his mom miscarried in the subway when Mm. she birthed the creature so like i feel like she is a part of his mom and like so could be his mom but i think you're right that she couldn't have protected him because she's not the whole person she's not all of Anna. She is just part of Anna. So because Helen is not a whole person, she is just good and innocent. She is, you know, she's a trope. She's not a real whole person. Like a mother is a real whole person with different feelings and emotions and dreams and desires and darkness inside of them, you know, and she doesn't have that. And so because of that, she can't protect them because she is just half a person basically and like we could talk about Anna as the bad mother and Helen as the good mother but yeah I think that this goes much deeper than that and like I said earlier Anna claims we are not all bad or good but if you want me Mark to be the bad guy I will be and she does become that Mm
1: -hmm. and so
0: Anna and Helen split and both of them are not whole anymore and Again, that's why Mark, like, wants to hang out with Helen. Like, <laughs> like mm-hmm. she is the loyal, goodly mother-wife figure that he misses in Anna. But she's not all of Anna, so he doesn't even want to have sex with her. <laughs> because, right. like, it's not his wife anymore. And we're not the person he fell in love with at the beginning. So, um, yeah. And, like, Mark's doppelganger... A.K. the creature, was made for Anna, but Anna's dead. And Helen was, quote-unquote, made for Mark, but Mark is dead. And now we only have Helen and the creature, and they were not made for each other. Right. So, like, much like how Anna and Mark weren't really right, now this now Helen and the creature are together, and they're not right. For each other. So, no matter what version of yourself exists, you and that other person are not right. No matter what, no matter what changes, no matter what happens, no matter like your looks, your personality, like it doesn't matter. You aren't right for each other. And, like, so when the creature comes to the door, Bob is pleading with Helen not to open it because he knows it's just going to start this cycle of abuse and toxicity all over again. And he's like, get me the fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to start over. I don't want to pick up where my parents left off. Like, I'm moving on to the next life is how I interpret yeah. that. Oh,
1: God, it's so sad. It is.
0: It's a sad ending. It is not a happy ending at all. And that's why the bombs go off. Like, that is why, like, the, the spies are involved at the end. Like, there is this definite split that there's no end in sight. Now, we know that the Berlin Wall did eventually fall. And, like, there was unity with Germany again. But when this film was made, there was no... <laughs> there was like no way that that was going to happen, right? When did what year did the yeah. Berlin Wall fall? Oh my
1: god, I should know. I want to say it was 1984, but I don't know for
0: sure. And it didn't fall until 1989. November 9th, 1989. 19- okay, yeah. yeah, so way into the future since that this film was made so there was obviously we in the present know that everything ended up being okay in the end but (laughs) when this film was made there was no end in sight to this division germany
1: everything was going to
0: shit everything was going to shit and you know people were lifting their children up above the wall so that grandparents could see their grandchildren for the first time like there was this split that that nobody saw was gonna you know that nobody saw an end to and yeah. that's why the bombs are going off that's why the gut the spies are involved like this this split was uh never-ending and yeah that's what happens with these parents so Mm. so uh let's get into our final thought abby (laughs) what does the title possession mean to you are you kidding what doesn't it mean in this (laughs) film (laughs) again everyone there's no wrong answer with this movie so let us know what you think it means but abby tell me what you think it means
1: (laughs) so when i was watching this film Possession, to me, meant that you want to possess someone else Mm -hmm. because you're not entirely yourself, especially in Mark's case. Yeah. Um, He's the very typical, uh, like, toxic male, like, taking over everything kind of thing. Sure. For Anna, it's being possessed by someone else, Mm. but having the freedom to choose that person. So in the end they're all possessed by something extremely toxic that resides in all of them and they can't seem to shake it Mm -hmm. like the toxic nature of the relationship keeps them going back and forth over and over and we've all had you know those friends who have the on again off again relationship and they're like
0: think things are going better this time yeah and
1: it's not really getting better they just are kind of dragging out and making the process harder i think it's it's kind of a testament to how people really do possess each other and how they feel like they are entitled to each other Mm -hmm. because there is like Uh, whether that's a marriage or a relationship or a child there's something that like binds them together and they feel like for some reason if that bond is broken then they are also broken Mm. that they are not a whole person so you have to possess each other
0: because it's like you're a 50 50 split you're half of a whole right i and i agree with you and that's why i didn't uh, write down my answer because when I read yours I was like, oh yeah, that's, I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, It's definitely like this possession of other people and, I mean, if you don't know what this film's about, you when you see the title, you think okay, it's a movie about being possessed by the devil or blah 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 blah. And right. maybe that is how Mark sees Anna. She's possessed by something else and she is different and yada yada, but like Mark is too after he leaves and comes back, you know, like everyone is possessed by something that is changing their personality, which makes them not want to connect, I suppose. But for me, it does really, um, it, it does show like possessing another person, wanting to control or be superior to another person and trying to, and then the, the, another person trying to break away from that to the point of hysteria. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh, a <laughs> it's a heavy film for sure. It, it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone, let us know what you think the title means, and let us know your theories on possession. Who are the doppelgangers, and what does the title mean? And why is Bob called Bob? What the hell? So. <laughs> And that's it for this month's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Thank you all so much for waiting on us. We have been taking our sweet time. (laughs) Yes, yes, we have. Getting everything figured out, figuring out what we want and don't want from the show. And, you know, we're very busy people and we want to have fun doing the show and uh, there's no reason to stress ourselves out. Uh, So thank you all so much for giving us this space to uh figure everything out and relax and and have fun again with the show because yeah it was starting to get to be a lot (laughs) yeah (laughs) for sure (laughs) yes uh well life became a lot and one thing had to go on the back burner and that was the show but everything is starting to smooth out a little bit so thank you all so much and we hope you enjoyed our return uh talking about possession and special thanks to Nadia Moraga for helping us with research for this episode. She helps us out with the goodness of her heart, so we are <laughs> incredibly grateful to her. Patreon is coming back soon, or maybe it's back already by the time this episode is up. I'm not sure. Either way, head on over to patreon.com goodmorningnancy. And honestly, even just $2 a month is extremely helpful to Abby and I. And if you appreciate our work, head on over there to patreon.com goodmorningnancy and give what you can. We really appreciate it. As always, too,
1: a free way to support the show is by following us on social media. So, Instagram at Good goodmorningnancy and Twitter at Good goodmorningnan. And reposting or retweeting our content really helps others to find our show. Also, word of mouth. Just... Grab a cup of coffee, and if it comes up in conversation, tell your
0: friends. Spread the word. GMN is back, baby. (laughs) Yes. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe out there because we love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.